You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would ask that you open it to Esther chapter 7. If you don't have one with you, uh, you can borrow one of ours. It's a black Bible in the pew in front of you, and you can find Esther chapter 7 on page 414 of that Bible. It has been said that the Old Testament is much like a room which is brilliantly furnished but is poorly lighted, and that the New Testament, when we read it and understand it correctly, sheds light on the Old Testament so that we can see not what is new there but what has always been there but outside of our sight. I think this is a helpful metaphor for what it's worth. It particularly gives a good explanation that the Old Testament is not a different revelation of God, but the New Testament is a fuller revelation of God that shines light back on the Old Testament. But I think that it fails in a certain respect. It seems to assume that so many people already believe that the Old Testament is good and necessary. And as we continue through the ages, I feel like that belief is wearing thin. We've noted that before. Many sermons, when I go through the Old Testament, we continually refer to the fact that the Old Testament is not just good, but necessary for us. And I think it is. There's a good question as to why, though. Why go to the Old Testament? When we preach in the Old Testament, when we talk about the Old Testament, the point of every single one of the texts in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. If the point is Jesus Christ, if when we preach we talk about Christ, Why linger in the Old Testament when we can just be where Christ is? Why not just preach the Gospels or preach through Romans or preach through Colossians? Why not just stay where Christ is explicit instead of coming back to a book like Esther where God, frankly, isn't even mentioned? Why not just stay where everything that we want is present on the face of the page instead of where we must look deeper into the Word? The answer that someone might give to that, I think, is really important Frankly, I think that the answer is pretty simple. To rightly understand who Jesus is, we have to have the Old Testament. Far from being something that is just good, like icing on cake, the Old Testament is so much more than that. The Old Testament is the foundation for everything that we know and believe of in Jesus Christ. The picture that we get of Jesus is perhaps comparable to something of a mosaic then. A mosaic is a a larger picture that is made up of smaller pictures or smaller pigments that are, are placed there. The Old Testament builds a picture of Jesus Christ. We get these individual little glimpses of themes and, and passages in the Old Testament that, when compiled rightly, give us a beautiful and right picture of Jesus Christ. We cannot have the right picture of Christ without them, yet they themselves do not speak of the fullness of Christ. The Old Testament is a foundation for understanding the work and the person of Jesus. If the New Testament tells us who Jesus is and what he has done, the Old Testament tells us why he did those things. Both are not just good, but they're necessary. So what does all this have to do with the book of Esther? Esther, I think, as much as anything, means to give us a picture of the gospel. Yes, on its surface, it is about the celebration of Purim, And deeper down, it is a picture of a God who isn't even there working out his gospel even amongst his people in a foreign land. It is not the full picture of the gospel. It isn't a one-to-one imitation of the gospel. 
The New Testament oftentimes calls these things shadows because they have the form of what they're trying to depict without any of the details. And that's basically what we get here in especially the climax of Esther in chapter 7. This is what everything has been pointed to. The rest is the working out of everything that kind of flows through this chapter. And Esther pictures the gospel here exceedingly well. It doesn't provide a full picture of Jesus. It doesn't provide a full picture of our redemption. But neither do sacrifices. Neither do the promises. Neither do any of the other histories of the Old Testament. But it provides a very clear point, a very clear part of the gospel that we can learn from and grow in our appreciation of Christ through. So if you would, read with me, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, the word of our God, and hear the gospel of Jesus even in Esther. Esther, chapter 7, verse 1. So, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of our God. The book of Esther does indeed show us a great deal about the gospel. As we begin, though, I think that it would be good to show what it doesn't tell us about the gospel. Let's first look at the differences between the book of Esther and the gospel. What are the differences between the book of Esther and the gospel? We have four people who play a major role in this particular passage. One of them doesn't really appear at all. That would be the Jewish people. They're kind of there in in presence spiritually only, but, but they're kind of in the background. They would really correspond, obviously, to us. The other three characters are pretty straightforward. Haman, who is 
pictured here as a foe and an enemy, is certainly one of many enemies that face the Jews throughout the Old Testament and face the people of God throughout the entirety of Scripture. I think he is one who rightly, he thinks, accuses the people of God of sin. In 3.8, he says that they do not keep the king's laws. He is an enemy, a foe, one who accuses the brethren. He stands as nothing less than Satan here. Any of the enemies of God look and sound like that ancient enemy. Esther, we've talked about, is a really good stand-in for Jesus, and we will talk more about that in a bit. Let's talk then about the role that Ahasuerus is to play in this passage. Ahasuerus is a great king. He is powerful. By great, I mean large and important. I do not mean that he is good. But he is great, and he is powerful. And he is the one who holds life and death for the Jews in his hands. He must be moved out of love to save the Jews, even if he doesn't know that he's saving them. And in all of that, I think that he is something of a stand-in for God. Now, saying that, we must immediately justify how it is that we can say that, because after all, he is a wicked and frankly weak-willed man. It's difficult then to say that Scripture is trying to present him as a godlike figure. But in this sense, I think it actually works. All of the Old Testament kings were something of godlike figures. They, they had a position of authority that, that God was to have. It didn't mean that they were equal with God. The kings of the Jews were continually called sons of God because they were to depict God to their people. And I would dare say that Ahasuerus is not terribly much more wicked than some of them. Every father who is in here pictures something of God to their children. So we know that wicked people can display the very nature of God to others. We, all of us, carry with us the image of God, whether we do wicked things or whether we do good things. This doesn't mean that he is a good symbol of God. It simply means that he is standing in for God, specifically in respect to his power and authority here. But there are several things that he does that stand in stark contrast to God. And because it's in contrast to God, it helps to, through the relief of the picture, provide us with a very brilliant picture of who God is. Let's kind of zoom to the end of the story and look at what happens. At some point in time, I think the king picks up on what is actually going on. Esther has played her game and she's played it well. I don't think the king knows anything about the edict that was mentioned. When Esther quotes the edict, I don't think that he picks up on the nature of it because, frankly, the king hasn't read a lick of it. But once he has Haman pointed out to him, Haman is the one who did this, I have no doubt in my head that he actually understands what has been said. And he knows that there is going to be great cost to him. When we read through the passage, everything has been leading up to this point. So we would expect that as soon as Esther says, hey, the real problem here is Haman, what we would expect is that the king would lash out at him, that punishment would be swift and severe and immediate. All the more when we read the king arose in his wrath. And Haman realizes right away that he is the one in the spotlight. He is the one in trouble. He is terrified for his life. It is very odd then that the king doesn't act. He leaves. He, he leaves to think. He leaves to consider. He leaves to do something. We're not actually told. The queen has recognized the issue that would come up with Ahasuerus. 
This is part of her delay tactic. It's part of throwing two feasts for him because she knows what she is requesting of him is going to be costly to him. And she even mentions it. Listen to how she puts this. This probably is rhetorical. She probably doesn't mean like if my people were just being sold as slaves, I wouldn't mention it. Perhaps she does mean this. But notice what she says. If it was just that we were being sold as slaves and not not having our lives on the line, but if it was just that we were being sold as slaves, I wouldn't have mentioned anything Because our affliction, even our whole nation being sold into slavery, isn't worth the price that you are going to pay. I think the king gets up and leaves because while he wants to kill Haman, while he wants to destroy him, the cost of doing so is incredibly high. It's not just the money. He will lose the 10,000 talents of silver. But it's esteem. After all, his was the ring, that signed off on the document. It was his law that went forward, his law that he knew nothing about, that condemned even his queen. That's not a good look. I don't know much about politics, but I know that's not a good look. He looks completely out of control in his own kingdom. It looks like he is being led around by those who assist him, which, while true, is not very helpful for him. His esteem will go down. More than that, we already saw what loyalty means to him. The Persian kings were known for rewarding people who showed their loyalty. When people find out that he gave the green light to Haman on all of this without knowing anything and then turned around when he found out what it was about and destroyed him immediately, how is anyone going to be loyal to him anymore? Who's going to come with any ideas that they know that he can just backtrack on and kill them for? More than that, even though we might not know what it is that Haman did well, He must have done something well to be raised up to second in the kingdom. This is a good advisor, at least in King Ahasuerus' eyes, that he will be losing. There is much for him to lose here. And he knows what is right. He knows in his heart what he wants to do. His wrath is against Haman. Which is why God, in his providence and in another coincidence, steps in and helps out the situation. This whole scenario, unbeknownst to Esther, I think, she wouldn't have been able to see how this was all going to work, puts Haman in a really difficult spot, not just because he's going to die, but in the immediate decision of what he's going to do when the king leaves. No one was to be in the presence of the queen alone except for the king. The eunuchs could, because they were eunuchs, but no man like Haman could be. What's Haman supposed to do? He knows the king is furious with him, so following the king seems like a really bad idea, but staying behind with Esther is not a good look either. But he realizes the only hope that he has now is Esther, so he falls on the couch begging her. Now, it is clear from the text that what he's doing is begging for his life, and he is not attacking the queen sexually or physically in any way, shape, or form. I think that it's clear to the king as well. But I also think that this gives the king an out. He doesn't have to kill Haman because of this really rancid edict. He doesn't have to kill Haman because of a plot to kill his wife. He can kill Haman now because Haman has attacked the queen, which is nothing less than an attack on the king's own life. He can hang him for treason which is the same thing that is implied by the eunuch in attendance, Harbona, when he says... Well, Haman prepared a gallows for Mordecai, who saved the king. It could be that 
this Haman was in on the assassination attempt. After all, he's trying to kill the one who saved my life. The king is given an out. It's convenient as well. In all of this, we find that Ahasuerus is not in the least like God. God, before the foundation of the world, knew precisely the cost that as Ahasuerus has to bear, he too would have to bear to save his people. He was able to count it. He was able to know it. He made the world and everything in it. In those six days, he made mankind knowing full well that everything that would happen from that point on out would lead to the cross where he himself, in in taking on flesh, would lay down his life in pain and in suffering. All of that cost was present before him before he ever decided to make an Adam. He knew. But unlike Ahasuerus, who also was able to count the cost, Our God was willing to take that cost. He was not looking for a convenient out. He did not look for another way. But he was willing to take upon all of the wrath. He was willing to take upon all of the pain and all of the suffering for us. God knew Ahasuerus was not up to this. He knew that he couldn't make this decision on his own, and so he gave him a convenient out. Our Lord Jesus Christ had no such out. He bore the wrath of God. For us, he takes it on willingly and fully. And what's more, he needs no motivation to do so. Ahasuerus, even with as much as he loved his wife, which he clearly does, was not motivated enough to save her life the way he ought to have. God had to provide him with a scapegoat, he had to provide him with another way, otherwise, everything is kind of in the balance here. God needs no motivation. It's good to pray for lost people. It is good to pray for God to save the nations. But you ought not think for a second that your prayer is what changes the mind of God toward the salvation of the nations. As though you were the one who was filled with grace and mercy. As though you were the one who longed for people to know God and not God himself. If you long for that, it's because God has put that in you. God doesn't need to be motivated to act for the nations. God doesn't need to be motivated to show his love and his mercy and his compassion to his people. As a matter of fact, much of the time, it is us who need to be motivated to do that. That's why we sing songs like, facing a task unfinished, because the task is unfinished, and, and we enjoy the things that are around us instead of finishing the task that God wants and wills for us to do. In all of this, Ahasuerus is a weak, ineffective, poor, stupid, ignorant leader. God is not. God cares for his people, and he loves his people. He suffers for his people, and he purchases his people. Which brings us to point two. Mercy in the book of Esther and the gospel. If God is so loving and so merciful, and what's more, Esther is supposed to be here a picture of Christ, why does she remain silent? Scholars, people who write commentaries on this stuff, have kind of an issue with the fact that this man is begging 
for his life, begging for it. And Esther refuses to give him mercy. She does not speak up. You might think, oh, all this happens so quickly. All of it kind of, kind of, kind of happens in the matter of, of mere minutes. She, she didn't have time to speak. No, she had time to speak. I have no doubt, with as cunning and as clever as Esther appears to be, that in all of this, she wouldn't have thought, when, when everything comes down, he's going to try and get out of it. He's going to try and beg for his life. But she doesn't speak up. Shouldn't Esther do something for Haman? Shouldn't the mercy of God be extended to him as well? Shouldn't grace and kindness be extended to him as well? Is this the right thing to do? Certainly, for you and I, it is not. We are called on time and time again as people of Christ to be gracious, to be merciful, and to be pitying those who do evil against us. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This comes directly after. He says, hey, if, if a soldier asks you to walk a mile with him, walk two miles with him. Do good to all people. Love them. Care for them, even your enemies. Paul says this in the book of Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, for us, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Are we to be filled with mercy and pity and grace for others? Absolutely. We are not Esther, and Esther is not us. Her situation was much different. Haman was not just a guy begging for his life. He was, as continually was said, the very first introduction we've had to him was this. The last time we, we meet Haman, this will be what we know him as. He's not just Haman, he's Haman an Agagite, the son of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who were doomed for destruction. They were always going to be enemies of God. They were always going to be enemies of the people of God. And throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, until this point, they show themselves to be exactly that. Deuteronomy 25 has Moses recording this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. That moment comes when Saul is told to go out and to destroy them, and he destroys almost all of them, except he has mercy on the king. And it is that mercy it is that mercy which removes the kingdom from him forever. Do not think yourself more merciful than God. Do not think yourself more gracious than God. Saul forgot what Moses told him to never forget. I would like to think that Esther does not. Esther not having mercy here is far from an error. It is good and righteous and just. Now, the question is, how does that track on the gospel? 
I'm going to tell you. It is good and righteous and just at times to not extend mercy to people, and Jesus is right to do it as well. Let's be very clear about what is going on in this text, because I'm telling you that many people who think they are going to get mercy will get none. What the text says is that he begged for his life. Noticeably missing is any remorse noticeably missing is any repentance. All it says is that he doesn't want consequences that his actions were clearly leading him toward. He was already prophesied about this. His wife and his friends said, this is not going to end well for you. And at no point in time does he seem to be backing off of any of it. What he wants is simply for justice to not be done. What he wants is simply for the consequences for him to up and disappear. Too often, Christians, particularly pastors specifically, get themselves in all kinds of trouble because they want to extend forgiveness and they want to extend the rights of the gospel to people who only want to miss out on consequence and aren't really repentant for what they've done. They're sorry that they got caught, or they're sorry that they will get caught. They're not actually sorry for what they've done. That's precisely who Haman is. Haman never confesses that he was wrong. He never speaks of the fear he has of God. He doesn't seek to undo what he did. He simply doesn't want justice to come for him. Friends, especially those of us who believe and hope in the gospel and who want and desire all the nations to come to know the good news of Jesus Christ, let us hold with a firm conviction that there is a great and wide gulf as far as the east is from the west between people who are sorry because they get caught or they think that they will get caught one day and people who actually hate their sin. Hating the consequences of your sin is not the same thing as hating your sin. Repentance is what grants you forgiveness. Being sorry that God will judge you and because you don't want to go to hell is never, ever going to get you forgiveness. Don't think that hell is somehow populated with a bunch of people who are like, this is pretty okay. It's all right to be here. Like that meme of the fire burning in the background with a dog sitting there drinking his coffee saying, this is fine. That's never the depiction of hell that we get anywhere in the Gospels, anywhere in the book of Revelation, anywhere in any writings of Paul. They always want out. They always want out. C.S. Lewis might have said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. People wrongly interpret what he's saying there. It doesn't mean that they're okay being there. Continually, as we just got done reading in our prayer meeting in Revelation 16, The wrath of God is falling on people. They are in suffering and in anguish and in pain. And the text is so clear. It says, they refuse to repent. Are they sorry? Yes. They're sorry that pain and suffering has come upon them. They are sorry that they got caught, but they are not repentant. And there will be no mercy. And there will be no pity. There will be no grace. 
unless we insist that people must be repentant for their sins, sorry for their sins, sorry for their sins in a way that means if I was never to be caught for it, I still wish I wouldn't have done it. We will never truly be holding on to the gospel. And we will give false assurance to many who deserve none. Colossians 3, 5 and 8. Paul says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. That living in them is is they were part of your life. You, You didn't know any different. This was just part of what you did. It was your joy and your happiness to do these things. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. In other words, you have to hate the sin and you have to want to run from it. That is what salvation looks like. People who refuse to repent will never know mercy. It is a beautiful and important picture that Esther gives us here, which finally then brings us back around to salvation. What does salvation in the book of Esther and the gospel look like? For those of you who are following along, and I'm always bad about this, point three, salvation in the book of Esther and the gospel. I I go through this and I'll start wording it differently and people are like, I don't know what the point was. Point three, the blank is salvation. No one has any excuse now. So, We've talked about how Esther is a shadow, is a, a picture, is a, a form of Jesus who was to come. She's not a perfect picture. If we had a perfect picture, she would be Jesus. She's not Jesus. But there are enough commonalities here to realize that she is a Christ-like figure. She is in a royal position. The implication of being given that royal position is itself the fact that she is to help her people with the problem that faces them. Just as Christ clothing himself as a king on earth was done so that he might buy back his people. She implicates herself in her people's plight. She risks her life for her people. Rhetorically, she fasts for three days and nights completely without food and water only to rise up and put on royal robes. As we said, that sounds a lot like a picture of resurrection. Like a shadow, not all the details fit. They don't need to. She doesn't actually die. She is a woman, not a man. She's related to the king as a husband and a wife, not a son and a father. All the details don't need to match, though. There's enough here. The details that are here ring true, and they are good. Esther's plan has finally come to fruition. And all of her cunning... And all of her daring has paid off. She even shows more brilliance in this particular passage than what we've already said. Remember, this is kind of a tricky issue. She knows that she's on a knife's edge here. She has to tell the king of Haman's wicked plot, but she knows very well that the king was the one who signed off on it. So she's got to imply and implicate Haman in the crime without really putting much blame on the king because that's not going to help her out much. She does this well by talking about the we've been sold, not somebody has bought, but we've been sold. 
She gains rhetorical force by not only giving honor to the king and showing that she knows the kind of request she's making, but explicitly saying, I know this is going to cost you. I know this isn't cheap for you. I would really like to see the dawning on Haman's face when she quotes the edict, because up to that point, there is no indication that he has any idea what's going on. But when she starts to quote that edict, I wonder if it starts to dawn on him, hey, that sounds a lot, uh-oh. It's a beautiful passage. When the king does actually ask about her request, he makes it in exaggerated language, exaggerated in a couple of ways. First, that repeated line, up to half my kingdom, which is clearly an exaggeration, but it shows that he is predisposed to give her any large wish that she might have. You know, I'm, I'm ready to grant you a huge wish, up to half my kingdom. He also makes the grandness of the request in exaggerated language by using two forms of this idea of request and wish. What is your wish? What is your request? Now, there's absolutely no way that he means you get a twofer here, okay? What he means is, whatever your wish is, whatever that request is, ask it and I will give it to you. What's interesting is Esther's reply. Because Esther replies with what seems to be two separate things, but given the fact that the king's actual question was meant to imply one request, we ought to read these as the same thing. What does she say? My wish is my life. My request are my people. What Esther is doing is putting pressure on the king to say, if you would save me, you must save my people. If you condemn the people, you condemn me. She is unified with her people. There is no separation between them. Their fates are the same. Their travails are the same. Their sufferings will be the same. The king has a choice now to love his wife and to save her people or to condemn them both. If I were to ask you what is the very center of the gospel, I wonder what most people would say. That's kind of a weird question to ask. What what does it mean to have a center of the gospel? I think as Protestants, the doctrine that stands kind of at the center of the gospel, a lot of us would say is justification by faith. What that means is that by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ, by believing in his resurrection from the dead, that he died for us and that he was raised for us, that God looks at us and in this great courtroom scene, he says that we are not guilty of things of which we are very, very guilty. Justification simply means that God is clearing us of all the charges that have been brought against us. He is saying, you are not guilty of these things. And we believe, as Protestants, that that happens simply by faith. That we are not justified by our faith and then how we work out that justification. We don't gain justification over time. I think that that's a particular blessing of the gospel. But I would argue that that's not the central facet of the gospel. There is one thing more central, one thing more basic than even justification by faith, and that is the idea that we are unified with Christ. Every blessing that comes to us comes to us, including justification by faith, because we are one with Christ. Everything that happens to Christ happens to us. Every good that is to come to Christ comes to us. 
Everything that should have come to us has gone to Christ. It is our union with Christ that brings us with all of the blessings to God. What about justification? In Galatians 2, 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When he says, I have been crucified with Christ, he doesn't mean that I was literally crucified. What he means is I'm so unified with Jesus that his crucifixion counts as mine. He goes on to say, just a sentence later, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. The reason why we are justified by faith is because we are unified to Christ. What of regeneration? What of being made anew? Paul says in Ephesians 2.4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is the fact that Christ came up out of the grave and we are unified with him that makes us alive. What about being reconciled to God? We are separated from God. What reconciles us to God? It is the person of Jesus Christ. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, in Colossians 1.19. Not only to God, but we are reconciled to one another through the body of Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to one another through him. In Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace, who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. We are reconciled because we are unified to Christ. Our sanctification is through this same idea, that we are unified to Christ. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, Paul? It says, let sin not reign in your mortal body so that you would obey its passions. Your sanctification, your working out, comes because you are unified in Christ. Adoption, being sons of God. Paul says this in Galatians, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ, in Christ, you are all sons of God. You're not sons of God outside of Christ. It's because you're unified to Christ that you are sons of God. The inheritance that is to come to us. In Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. In Jesus, we obtain it. It doesn't come to us through some other means. All of the blessings, including glorification in Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our glory is in Christ. Our adoption is in Christ. Our inheritance is in Christ. All of it is in Christ. Why? Because as Esther says, my life and their lives are bound together. Their death and my death is bound together. Esther's response here sets forward this particular understanding. And it's not, it's not that the Old Testament doesn't show this anywhere else. But rarely is it quite as clear as it is here in the book of Esther. The people are saved not because Ahasuerus loved the Jews, not because Ahasuerus loved what was right and good. They are saved because Ahasuerus loves the queen. You are saved because the father loves the son. You are saved because the son loves the father and does the will that has been placed before him. 
You are loved because the Spirit loves to do the work of both the Father and Son as they send him into the world and he changes hearts and minds to trust in the gospel. It is not by some random belief in God. It is not as though we have access to the Father and we can talk about our love for the Father. It is not through simply wanting to avoid hell. Our salvation comes to us because we are unified by faith in Jesus Christ. Because when we see Christ, we see our blessing. When we see Christ, we see our death. When we see Christ, we see all of the good that would come to us. Because he has earned it and we are in him. It is all about Christ and has nothing to do with us. The people here do not save themselves. Esther saves them. Because they are unified to her and she is unified to them. The same with Christ and his people. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every blessing that comes to you comes to you through Christ Unify yourself to him in faith. Trust in his death and resurrection as your own. And that is where your blessings come from. Friends, this is the the best news of all. This is the good news. But Paul didn't come up with all of this unification language all on his own. This is written into the whoop and wharf of the Old Testament. You need to be found in Abraham. It is through Abraham, the one seed, that all of the nations will be blessed. That germ of an idea finds its a different manipulation of it, but a different presentation of it here in the book of Esther, which is all pointing at Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Christ has died your death. And Christ's resurrection is your life. And all of the blessings that God would pour out upon his son are poured out upon us through him. What a gift. For the foundation of the world, God, moved by love, by pity, and by mercy, knew full well the price that he would have to pay to redeem you. He knew full well that he would send his son. He knew full well that he would clothe himself in humanity, that he would take suffering and sin and wrath upon himself, and he would pay the full price for it because he loves you. This morning, if you have never trusted in him, Do not think for a second that simply because you don't want to suffer hell, that somehow you will get out. That somehow because you've shown up and you've done good things, you've shown up here, you say, I go to church. That you can avoid hell. That God will look upon that with enough favor. Don't think that because you read your Bible on the off day, don't think that because you trust in some vague notion of who God is, that God will spare you. You are only spared. You are only given salvation. You are only given mercy in Christ. Trust in him. Because that is the good news. That's all it takes. Put yourself in his mercy. Put yourself in his grace. And join the rest of us who in knowing Jesus Christ will raise up our voices gloriously loud to praise the God who has saved us from our sin. Give thanks to the Lord. He is good, and his steadfast love in Christ remains forever. Let us pray. 
Father of our salvation, praise you. Praise be to the Father whose wise, good, and loving plan brought us our salvation. Praise to you, Jesus the Son, who died in our stead and was raised for our justification. Praise to the Spirit who moved in our hearts and has bound us to the Son. May praise and glory and power and might and honor and worship be to the triune God of our salvation forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' most blessed name. Amen.